Good morning. Our, good morning. Our scripture reading for this morning is Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 36. You will find that in your worship folder and also on the screen behind me. Hear now the word of the Lord. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the, that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. May God bless the reading of his word. All right, thank you, Ivan. Good morning. Good to see so many of you this morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer, and we continue this morning in a series that we have uh, been doing all throughout this Advent season on the kingdom of God, and we come to yet another passage here in Luke. Luke has a lot to say about the kingdom, uh, only second to Matthew in the New Testament, the Gospels, and their emphasis on this idea of Jesus' kingdom. And so we wanted to take some time while we were in Luke to spend a few weeks talking about what Luke has to say about God's kingdom. And so we come to another passage here where there's a, where there's a long teaching of Jesus in, in Luke 21 uh, about the nature of, of the kingdom of God. Uh, our theme this Advent, as I've said, is the kingdom. And by the kingdom we mean the biblical vision of human flourishing, that we were made to walk and talk with God. We, we, we were made for that, but we, we've lost it. Sin has taken it away from us. We are now we believe, alienated from God. We are alienated psychologically and emotionally from ourselves. We experience anxiety and depression and, and guilt and, and these sorts of things. We are alienated from one another. We, we, you know, often our experience is relational friction and hurt feelings, and particularly around this time of year, family drama and so forth. We're, we're broken. Our relationships with one another are broken, and therefore society is broken. But the promise of the Bible is that God will one day come and undo all of this brokenness, and we will once again experience the personal, emotional, relational, social, spiritual flourishing that we were made for, and that is, that is the kingdom of God. Now, Advent has both reference to Jesus' first coming and his second coming, and we celebrate his first coming at Christmas, but we're waiting for his second coming. And the, king, and, and the kingdom of God has reference to both, too. And that's what we want to see from this passage in Luke 21. Every week we've been taking a passage like this and we've been saying, what do we learn about the kingdom of God? Very simply, what do we learn about the kingdom of God 
uh, from the passage, and then in response to what we learn, what should our what what should our you know posture be? And this morning, what we learn is that the kingdom is now, but not yet. It's future, and because it's a future reality that we're still waiting for, then the the response is what the Bible talks about when it when it gives us the word hope, and hope means living in the present. In light of the future. So that's, that's kind of our outline this morning. You see that there in your worship folder and we'll just walk. We're going to take this passage in generalities. We're not going to get weighed down into the details of everything that Luke is trying to tell us here because um, that's the mistake that, that actually the passage is trying to correct. Uh, and we don't want to mistakenly take the passage uh, for what it's trying to do for us here, okay? And so first, let's just start with what do we learn about the kingdom of God from this text here in Luke chapter 1? And, and if I could boil it down for you, here really is the teaching. We learn that the kingdom of God, what we've been talking about now for three weeks, that, that it is a future kingdom. That there's a now and also a not yet aspect to it. Now, And that's why I need to qualify what I just said. It's a future kingdom. But remember, we spent all of last week arguing, you know, Luke seventeen twenty one, that the kingdom is in the midst of you. That that phrase there in Luke 17 means that God's presence and his power are available to every single one of us now that we can begin to experience his blessing and flourishing even in small measure as we live together in community with one another under his authority and power. But sometimes, sometimes I think we really, we undervalue, we underappreciate the already of what, of what, of what the Bible says is true of the kingdom. We undervalue, we, under, we underappreciate all that is already ours in Christ. And we have to be careful not to do that. I have a 15-year-old. And, um, you know, he is coming into his strength and to the vitality of manhood. And he doesn't know it yet, but I feel it, that I'm going to be on my way out the other side pretty soon. Not yet, just not quite yet. I'm not there yet, but it's not too far. And the point is, the point is, you know, young, young men are, are want to measure themselves against their fathers. And so that happens in our house some. And what, what I don't think he realizes is if he wanted to, he really could take me. Okay, I, I mean, it's really, we're at that place. Uh, now, I'm, you know, he doesn't know it yet, I don't think, and I'm going to keep him in the dark for as long as I can, although he's sitting in the front row, so I'm kind of outing myself here. But I, I firmly believe that the only thing standing in his way is I can still outsmart him, but he could outlast me if he wanted to. I mean, he really could. And one day it'll click, and then it'll be, it'll all be over. I mean, I'll be, I'll just, I'll be in trouble and have to tap out and claim to be defeated. But the point being, we are stronger. We are stronger than we realize. That we have spiritual resources at our disposal that we undersell to ourselves all the time. And you know, I, we sing that song often in this church, um, Jesus, I thy cross have taken. Jesus, I my cross have taken. And you know, it's a song that calls us to a radical obedience and faith. I mean, some really, really strong words about the way we should live our lives. And at the very end of the song, I think it's in the, the second to last uh, stanza of the song, there's just a line that you come across as the song is trying to push us and compel us into this life of radical obedience and, and sacrifice that Jesus has called us to. The line just comes, think what spirit dwells within you. Right? In other words, if you had any notion of really what is true of you, given that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, as Christians claim, has come, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, to live inside of you, then, then, you know, then, then for you to say, I can't do that is never, a good, is never a good reason. 
Because there are things that are true of you that you may not even imagine. God's presence and power available to us and accessible to us in ways that we, I think, undervalue and under, undersell. We can access them now. The kingdom is here. It has come. And that's the teaching that we've been looking at for weeks now. But at the same time, while the kingdom has come and is among us, what we learn here in Luke 21 is that it is also coming. Now, this is a strange way of saying this, but what the Bible teaches us about the kingdom of God, it is at the same time come and it is coming. And that's really what this passage is all about. This one little nugget I want to draw out from the text is that there's a now and a not yet, and we can't forget the not yet part of of the kingdom that will only be true of Jesus' second coming. And so the Jews here, Jesus begins to walk through the temple, temple courtyards and the temple, you know, the part of the city where the temple was located here in Luke 21. And he begins to talk about the destruction of the temple that will happen in 70 AD, just about 40 years after his resurrection, death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. And he says, you know, the temple is going to be destroyed. And in the minds of the Jews, for him to say the temple was going to be destroyed, they immediately connect that. Well, then when that happens, then that must mean the kingdom is, is going to come then. And Jesus says, all of this teaching is really designed by Jesus to say, no, even when you see that happen, even 40 years from now, when these things start to really take place and, and Rome comes in and destroys the city, don't think that that means the kingdom. The kingdom is near. But even that, doesn't, but it's still not yet. It's still coming You still have to wait. And so the text describes these events, verse 33, as heaven and earth will pass away, is what we're told there. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So that, that, and and you read that, and immediately you think that must mean that heaven, that, that, that earth as we know it is going to come to to an end, that, that this life is going to cease and something else is going to take its place. But there's a parallel passage in 2 Corinthians where Paul writes, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. And, and the language there, that, that phrase of passing away and something new coming, is really pointing to, to a transformation. It's something that's being transformed. And, and, and in like measure, what Jesus is saying is, is heaven and earth is, you know, the, the world is on its way out, and, and heaven and earth is undergoing this process, though it be a long process, of transformation, which means... Which means that there's, a, that there's a present orientation, there's a project, there's a mission, there's a renewal project going on all around us as God takes this world and makes all things new. And he, as we read in Revelation, the new heavens and the new earth will come down and, and take the place of the present heavens and the present earth. And so there's this present orientation, this mission that we've been given to see the kingdom of God come and his will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. But at the same time, there's a future orientation to our salvation as well. We are eagerly waiting for the hope of righteousness, as Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. There's still something coming. Now, it's not doubt. It's not an uncertainty. It's an absolute certainty. We are already righteous in Christ Jesus, right? Amen? You with me? Our righteousness has been settled. We are already righteous in him. But one day, Paul's saying, we will experience the fullness of that. There's a fullness of it that we've not yet experienced. That we will one day know the fullness of God's love and acceptance. We will one day experience his embrace in a way that we can't until we get to that day. And so we can underestimate the reality of the kingdom. We can also overestimate it. 
We can also think that, you know, and, and, be, and, and the, the problem with overestimating is you become easily discouraged. Well, it should be this way now. You know, it should, this is what the Bible says. Look at what the Bible says should be true of my life, and it's not true of my life. And we think something must be wrong, and it's not that something's wrong. It's that those promises in the Bible have a now and a not yet component to them too. We need to be careful not to, not to underestimate the reality of the kingdom, but also not to overestimate the reality of the kingdom because it's now in a not yet dynamic. Historians will say that World War II was won on D-Day. That the moment that we landed on Normandy and that the moment we took the beach, that it really was just a matter of time. But even even though the decisive victory came on D-Day, see, there was still fighting to do. There were still battles to be won to get to V-Day. And so, if you use that as an analogy, one of the ways that scholars will talk about the kingdom of God is that they say, you know, we live right now in the in-between, between D-Day and V-Day. If that analogy helps. So the moment, the moment the first cry the moment the first breath of the infant caught, the moment the first cry of the infant Jesus rang out in the night air in Bethlehem, the battle was won. But there's still battles to be fought. The victory's still coming. It's not complete yet. And that really is what we learn. That's really what we learn about the kingdom. That it's, 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 a, it's an eternal kingdom. It's a future kingdom. There's a, a not yet, and we can't forget. We can't forget the not yet component. Or we'll expect things to be true that never seem to come true of our lives and we'll be too easily discouraged. And he doesn't want us to be discouraged. That's the point of the text. Instead of discouraging and being discouraged and being overwhelmed and being shaken by the way things really work out in our life, you see here our response should be instead patience and waiting. Like Simeon, who's our example, and it's the reason we chose that text this morning as a call to worship, Simeon, Waiting on the consolation of Israel, we're told. Simeon, who was waiting for some future work of God, the coming of the Christ that would signal God's salvation for his people. Like Simeon, we are waiting for Jesus to come the second time. Uh, and there's a biblical word that describes this patient, enduring, you know, waiting on God to fulfill his promises, this longing that should be true of us, and it's the word hope. It's the biblical idea of hope. And hope is one of the three theological virtues, according to the ancient people, because it is unique to people of faith. It's unique to Christianity. Secularism, which has invaded our culture, says that there is no ultimate future, that there is no story being written. There is no happily ever after in life. Life is a random, chaotic collection of events, and one day an asteroid will slam into the earth or something like that, and it will all be over. That's about the only story our culture can tell. There's no reason for, for why we're here in the first place. Uh, there's really no, there's nothing we're, you know, nothing we're headed towards, and so it probably is going to be some cataclysmic event, and then it'll be like a blip on the screen, and we'll all be gone. Christianity claims that's absolutely not true. Christianity claims human history is going somewhere. It's, it's, there's a climax that we're headed towards, and, and we're, we're going towards something, and we're going towards the kingdom of God. The new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 21 and 22. And so hope is a Christian virtue that, that really we can define it like this. Hope is living the present in light of that ultimate future. Wherever you come across, like in Isaiah 40, if you were to keep reading in Isaiah 40 where it says those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. That idea of waiting, Simeon waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting or patience or 
enduring or hoping, wherever you see this cluster of words, it always means this unique um, approach to life of living the present in light of the ultimate future. Hope, the Christian virtue of hope, is bringing the inevitability of the future kingdom of God into the struggles and sins of the present so that you keep going no matter how hard things might get. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to his, to his men here. That's the reason, again, we're not getting into the details this morning, but that is the reason for this text, is the teaching of the text. The word's not found there in Luke 21, but it's what Luke 21 is about. It's the theme. Luke 21 is about living a future-oriented present. And that really is how all of us are to live. We are hope-shaped creatures. The way we live in the present is completely controlled by what we believe about the future. I was reading a story not long ago about two men who were captured in a, in a, in a war, or you know, in a civil war, and they were thrown into a dungeon. And just before they went to prison, the one man discovered that his wife and his, and his child, his infant child, had been killed. The other man learned that his wife and his child had escaped, and they were alive, and they were waiting for him. And in the first couple of years of imprisonment, that first man just withered away. And, and he, he just wasted away. Why? Because he had no hope. There was no future that he was looking forward to. The second man endured and stayed strong, and ten years later he walked out a free man. So the two men, see, they experienced the same difficult circumstances, but their response was very different because while they experienced the same present, they had their minds set on a very different future. And it was the future that determined how they handled the heartbreak and the, and the, and the sadness of the present. And so the Bible teaches, and I think this passage teaches, that we're, and we have to change our, the way we think. The Bible would say that we're not being pushed through life by our beliefs and our values or whatever it might be as much as we're being pulled. We're being pulled forward by a future goal, by some kind of hope. So you see, it's not, it's not as if the motivational core of our lives is, is not something that's gotten behind us and is kind of pushing us forward. It's something that's pulling us. There's a future. There's a, there's a dream. There's a, there's a vision of flourishing, whatever it might be, out in front of us that, that, is, that is pulling us like a gravitational pull towards it. James K. Smith, who's a professor at Calvin College, wrote a book about this, and he said this. He re- these are his words. He says, To be human is to desire the kingdom. Every one of us is on some kind of Arthurian quest for the Holy Grail, that hoped-for, longed-for, dreamed-of picture of the good life. It is the kingdom that pulls us to get up in the morning and suit up for the quest. Every single one of us has a picture of the kingdom. And whatever, our, whatever it is in our imagination that we picture that to be is what is really providing the motivation for us to get up and, and get going in the day. I, I talked about this m- months ago, and I, I said, you know, for some of us, for me, there's the Father of the Bride. You remember that old Steve Martin movie, Father of the Bride, you know? And there's a scene in Father of the Bride where he's playing basketball with his daughter uh, out in the driveway of this beautiful home they've built, and they've done it, you know, and, and they're just playing basketball, and she, there's a moment when she looks at him, and she says, Daddy, I don't want to leave. Now, for some of us, that might be the future. That we're, I mean, that's, that's the, oh, that's the flourishing Something like that. You know, it might be something as simple as that. Or what, for me, like, the, I see these pictures of grandparents, these, you know, grandparents that have, like, 15 grandchildren all around them, and everybody's all smiley. It might be, you know, oh, if I, that. It could be something as simple as that, but whatever it might be. Or, you know, take a pregnancy, for example. If, if uh, in France, years ago, it, when, when you, would greet a, you would greet a pregnant lady, I, don't, I can't say the French phrase, but... The, the phrase that the French people would, would greet a woman who was pregnant with is, congratulations on your hope. 
Right, because, because there's a sense of, if, you know, if the baby's coming, then that, for that whole nine months, every single thing in your life is lived in light of, you know, where you're headed in that. There's some future hope, some picture, an imaginative, um, you know, picture of what the kingdom is, and we're being pulled towards it. So the text teaches us that we're hope-shaped creatures, but the text also helps us, because the, if that's true, and if you, if you would agree with me on that, then it, we, need, we also need help because we need to locate our hope in the right place. Again, for the Jews, the hope of the kingdom was an earthly kingdom. In this passage, in the parallel passages in other Gospels, acts as a correction against their wrong assumptions. So the Christian hope, they, the Christian hope, what is uniquely Christian is our, our hope is nothing less than the second coming of Christ and the consummation of the kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. That's what Jonathan prayed. Our hope, unlike the Jews, the Jews, their hope was a political Messiah who would boot the Romans out and everything would be great. Or, you know, that God would come and he would establish his people and their their flourishing in the world. But for Christians, our hope is the second coming of Christ and the consummation of the kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. The coming of the Son of Man, not in humility and weakness to defeat sin and death as in his first coming, but look at verse 27, on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. It's that coming. That coming is our ultimate hope. And so Christian hope is living the present in light of that ultimate, future, eternal hope. It was C.S. Lewis who said that throughout history, the Christians who did the most good in the present world were those who thought the most about the next. Historically, if you read the writings of the saints, you find that their minds were occupied with heaven. It's no longer the case today. Christians today have largely ceased to think of the other world, and as a result, we've become rather ineffective in this one, I think. And, and the, the reality is, is this has to be defended. I'm saying that, that really, in order for you to live effectively as a, as, a, as a follower of Jesus, you have to have a very clear understanding of the, the heavenly hope that is yours that, that can pull you forward in a way that, that, that really produces faithfulness and obedience in you. And, and we have to defend this because modern, modern people don't necessarily agree. The modern world, we live in a world that has lost hope. The, the more secular our culture becomes, the more it dismisses this vital virtue as an immature escape from the harsh and gritty truths of the real world. So the culture would, the culture would, would scoff at the very thing I'm saying this morning. Don't do that. That's, that's silly. That, that ignores what is right in front of you, the real reality of the world. That's, that's an immature thing to do. And I know I talk about these guys a lot. Uh, but it's because they really are prophetic for our times, particularly in this regard. But J.R.R. Tolkien faced a ton of criticism uh, from the academic and social elites in his day for writing The Lord of the Rings. Much like I face uh, some, 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 some sarcasm about how often I talk about these guys, okay? So Tolkien had to defend himself, and I'm going to defend my defending of Tolkien, I guess. But... What people would say is they would say, you know, here's this guy. I mean, he's a professor at, you know, at a prestigious university in England. I mean, one of the, one of the smartest people on the face of the earth at the time. And they said, why, why would you waste your talent writing a fantasy? Why, why write a children's story? And they really didn't take him seriously. So remember, he's writing between World War I and World War II. It's a really dark time in Europe's history where, where a sense of realism and postmodernism is really starting to grip people and they're becoming really pessimistic about the world. And here he's writing this fantastical story about elves and dwarves and magical swords and all these kinds of things. And they said, that, you're, that's silly. Why do that? And so he wrote a defense of his work, a short essay. And here's what he said. 
And I found it really helpful. He said, when it comes to real life, here's his argument. Escape is evidently, as a rule, very practical and may even be heroic. Listen to, what, listen to his analogy. Why should a man be scorned if, finding himself in prison, he tries to get out and get home? Or if, when he cannot do so, he thinks and talks about other topics than jailers and prison walls? So in other words, Tolkien says the prisoner who tries to escape from his cell is neither naive or blindly optimistic. He's practical. He's realistic. He's maybe even heroic because he yearns to break free from his chains and breathe the air of free open spaces. So according to Tolkien, deep conviction and fascination and even intellectual orientation towards heaven isn't a cop-out. It isn't daydreaming in class. It's heroic. It's a moral imperative because this world is a prison cell. And no prisoner in his right mind spends all of his time dreaming about cell renovation projects. What does he dream about? He dreams about freedom. And that's why Tolkien wrote the books that he did. And it's why we should read the books that he wrote. Okay? We should. Because the myths and the fairy stories, as he called them, might be false as history, but they're true as prophecy. They connect somewhere to the deep places of our hearts. And in the essay I mentioned before, Tolkien goes on to say that the power of the stories that he and C.S. Lewis and others wrote is what he called the consolation of the happy ending. Remember Simeon there, Simeon in Luke 2, waiting for the consolation of Israel. The happy ending, the coming of the Christ. Isn't that what's so powerful about the writing of the prophets in our Old Testament scriptures? They do not shy away from the harsh realities of life, but there's always the happy ending. You know, you read the prophets and they say, true, that's what things are like now. It's pretty bad, but one day, one day, and they point us towards the happy ending. Andrew Peterson has a new album. He's the guy, he came a number of, a couple years ago and did Behold the Lamb of God here with us, but his new album really is tremendous. And the first track uh, is a song called The Dark Before the Dawn, and here's some of the lyrics. Let me just read them to you. He says, um, he says, so I'm waiting, I'm waiting for the king to come galloping out of the clouds while the angel armies sing. He's going to gather his people in the shadow of his wings, and I'm going to raise my voice with the song of the redeemed, because this darkness is a small and passing thing. These are his words. Listen, he says this. He means this life. The sadness and the pain and the, you know, all the things we have to endure here. This is the storm before the calm. This is the pain before the balm. It's the cold before the warm. These are the tears before the song. This is the dark. And sometimes all I see is darkness. Can't you feel the darkness? It is the dark before the dawn. And that's what Christian hope looks like. Now, <laughs> I'm geeking out about this, but I, as I was studying this this week, um, Peterson's, that song is really a meditation on a passage from the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> I found that out, <clears throat> which, was, which was pretty amazing for me, I have to be honest. I may have given out a yell in my office throughout the week. When I, uh, in one of the darkest moments of the book, Sam, who is Frodo's companion on his journey to, to destroy the ring, Sam looks into the sky, the sun is set, and they're in Mordor at this point, and, and um, you know, in the realm of the, the, evil, the evil king. And, um, and he looks into the sky, and he sees a star amidst all the blackness. And here, listen, these are, these are, these are um, Tolkien's words. He says, <laughs> he says, the beauty, 
the beauty of it smote his heart. And as he looked up out of the forsaken land and hope returned to him, for like a shaft clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing, that there was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. I mean, that, it's just beautiful. I mean, hope, hope, is, hope is that. Hope is when the beauty of heaven smites your heart and you're able to look past, look up out of, look past the brokenness and the pain of this forsaken land and find the courage you need to keep going because you know, because you know no matter how hard things get here, no matter what sadness you have to endure here, no matter how slow progress is here, it is a small and passing thing. And there's a beauty. There's a beauty and a joy. There's a beauty that is your inheritance that is beyond the reach of any trouble this world might cause you. And so this otherworldly orientation is a good thing, I think. Not a bad thing. I mean, that's what the, the answer the Bible gives. Is that, that, that we're pointed towards this. This is a necessary thing. One more, one more example of this. If you look at the spiritual songs that the slave, that slaves sang as they worked the fields on southern plantations, they sang. All the, all the spirituals, they sing about heaven and judgment day and crowns and thorns that they would one day receive. And in 1947, African-American scholar Howard Thurman gave a lecture at Harvard in defense of this future orientation because the charge was that all the talk of heaven in, you know, among, the, among the slaves made them, made them too docile. They too resigned to their condition that people said that they should have translated their hope into some form of political activism instead of just dreaming of heaven. And he argued, rightly, I believe, the opposite. Here's what Thurman said. He said, the facts make clear that their hope of heaven served to deepen the capacity of endurance and the absorption of suffering. Which is what we need, right? I mean, the strategies of avoiding suffering are not good strategies. We need a strategy of absorbing suffering And so Thurman says their hope of heaven served to deepen their capacity of endurance and their absorption of suffering. It taught them how to look squarely in the face of those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope and to use those facts as raw material out of which they fashioned a hope that their environment with all of its cruelty could not crush. They made a worthless life worth living. Listen to this sentence. They yielded with abiding enthusiasm to a view of life which included all the events of their experience without exhausting themselves in those experiences. That is otherworldly. That's, some, that's, something, that's something unique that only the gospel can do. That. But it's what we desperately need. These slave singers knew that eventually all their dreams would come true. That, there, that no slave master was going to get away with anything. That all the wrongdoing of this world would be put down. And their hope was not in the present but in the future. That's the only way to face the hard realities of life. If it, was, it, it, if it was the key to them carrying out their work through such horrendous suffering and pain, then it can help you and I too to have the strength, as we see there in verse 36, to escape and stand before the Son of Man. Now let me make one, one caveat before we move on here. And, and to go back to C.S. Lewis, you know, to just join him with Tolkien. So it's really, you know, we're quoting both, so it's a really good sermon this morning, okay? So... Just, just for posterity's sake. Um, the Screwtape Letters, which I'm, I just happened to be reading this week, and as I was preparing for this, Lewis has Screwtape, you know, who's the, the senior demon saying to Wormwood, his, his chief lieutenant, or his, the, his understudy, uh, that the best strategy for tempting humans is to keep them away. Here's what Lewis says. He says, to keep them away from, from either fixing on the eternal or fixing on the present. 
So when our minds, when our minds are fixed, because remember what we said, hope, hope is living in the present in light of the ultimate future, you know, eternal hope that we have. Living in the present in light of eternity, that's hope. Lewis has screw tape saying that when our minds are fixed on either the present or on the eternal, we are really dangerous to evil. So the solution is to get us to think about the future, but not, see, not the ultimate future we're talking about, not, not when he finally comes again to make all things new, but some temporal future, because, and here are his words, the future is of all things the least like eternity. He goes on to say this, he says, nearly all vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past, love to the present, but fear, avarice, lust, and ambition all look ahead. And so it, this is the problem with the way we handle texts like Luke 21. We, we, we bring them in and we think, okay, well, you know, 70, 80s, 40 years from now, and so I need to figure out, and we make a timeline, and we get everything sorted out, and we miss the fact that what, what Jesus is trying to point us to is beyond any temporal hope we might have of the way our circumstances might move in the future to the ultimate future in eternity that is the actual thing that can bring power into our presence. So here's what Screwtape goes on to say. He says, to be sure... The enemy wants men, the enemy is God, by the way. To be sure, the enemy, God, wants men to think of the future too, just so much as is necessary for now planning the acts of justice and charity, which will probably be their duty tomorrow. He does not want men to give the future their hearts, to place their treasure in it, but we do. Listen to this. His, God's ideal, is a man who, having worked all day for the good of posterity, washes his hands of the whole subject, commits the issue to heaven, and returns at once to the patience or gratitude demanded by the moment that is passing over him. This is powerful. We, this is the demon speaking now, we, we want a man had ridden by the future, haunted by visions of an imminent heaven or hell upon earth, ready to break the enemy's commands in the present, if by doing so we make him think he can attain one or avert the other. And this is the line that stopped me. We, this is evil. We, we want a whole race perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end, but never honest nor kind nor happy now. Hope is living the present in light of the ultimate future. The scheme of the enemy is to get us to falsely hope in some immediate future and become so infatuated with it that we don't mind eternity and we're never in the moment either. That's the broken... We we don't mind eternity. We're never in the moment either. We're perpetually in pursuit of the rainbow's end but never honest or kind or happy now. And I really think, man, here here we're caught. This, This, we're caught. Because the reason so much... The reason eternity has such little appeal to our cultures because we have so much reason to hope in temporal solutions and technologies. And we have been trained without even knowing it by our culture to believe whatever problem we're facing, that there's an earthly answer to it. We've achieved pretty amazing things, haven't we? Uh, You know, we've achieved pretty amazing things as a society. There are very few problems that we've not solved. And the ones we've not solved, it's just a matter of time. So give to the research. I mean, this is the secular narrative, and it seems to work that way for everybody else most times. But for some reason, it never seems to work for me. What C.S. Lewis says is, is hoping in some temporal future is playing into the enemy's hands because hoping in things that are uncertain and that, will ha- that we have no control over at the end of the day is a recipe for disappointment and discouragement and impatience. And I think this is what the Bible means when it says in Romans 8, hope is, that is seen as no hope. For who hopes, or, excuse me, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. True hope is hope we can't see. And here's my question. If things are so great, why are we still so unhappy? 
If things are so great in the world, I mean, if, they, if, if it really, you know, is so great here, why are we so discontent? Why are we so greedy and violent and protective of ourselves? We are the most technologically advanced society in history, the most prosperous the world has ever seen. We have more access to health care, more opportunities for advancement. Still, we're not satisfied. We have all the world could possibly offer us, and it's not enough, which leads me to the only conclusion, and it must be that we've been made for another world. And so we come to the doctrine as we finish this morning. I mean, there's a doctrine here that we're, that we're being taught. And the doctrine in Luke 21 is just this. If you put your hope in something that can be shaken, then you will be shaken. But if you put your hope in what is unshakable, then you will become a person who's unshakable. If you hope in some immediate future, which is uncertain or which is only temporary, then you'll be like these people characterized by Jesus here in Luke 21. Look at verses 25 and 26. He says there'll be signs... In sun and moon and stars and on earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. I mean, these people that he describes are falling apart. Look at the words that describes them again. Distress, that's anguish or emotional torment. Perplexity, excuse me, they'll be full of doubt and hesitancy. They're fainting with fear and foreboding. Why? Because when the Son of Man comes, he will shake the earth, we're told, and the world system, the values and priorities and ways of life of this present world will crumble, which is why the Bible says in John, 1 John chapter 2, don't love the world or the things of the world because the world is passing away. If you, if you put your hope in earthly things, you're putting your hope in something that is impermanent, unstable, and fleeting. A metaphor might be helpful here, too. In Florida, we have to deal with hurricanes, which I don't like. In California, they have to deal with earthquakes, which is worse, in my opinion, because you never, I mean, it's just out of the blue. And, and the reason is because the state is built upon the San Andreas Fault. So if you, you know, that, that's really the metaphor here. If you put your hope in anything that is, that in this world, you're, you're, you're building your life on an active fault line. And at any moment, the ground beneath you might begin to shake. And when it shakes, what Jesus is saying is, you'll shake. So you put your hope in a relationship, for example, and then there's trouble or conflict, and you begin to shake. Put your hope in a political party, and when they are defeated, the ground beneath you will shake. Or put your hope in, in earthly wealth or position, and you'll become like the people Jesus describes here in verse 24, weighed down. You see that? Weighed down, which means insensitive to spiritual things, because you're consumed with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. That's how people who don't believe in eternity live. And Jesus is saying, we, we believe, we shouldn't live that way because we believe in the reality of the eternal kingdom that is ours. And he says to those people, the day of his coming will be like a trap. You see that? In other words, it will not be your release from the prison cell. It will be the day when the cell door shuts on you, but for all eternity. But put your hope in that which is unshakable, and you'll be unshakable. That's the teaching. And that's what Jesus is trying to lead us to here. I mean, listen to First Peter. Let me, just, let me just finish with this. Listen to First Peter. This is, these are wonderful words. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfaded, Unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. In that, in that future hope you rejoice, though 
now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. If your hope is in heaven, then no change of circumstance will shake you. No amount of suffering will put you off what God has called you to. If you lose everything, it will be okay because your inheritance is in heaven. Your riches are in heaven. So when the ground beneath you begins to shake, it won't shake you because your hope is being kept for you in heaven and you are being kept for it. Living for the future, the right future, is the key to living faithfully in the present. And so one last question, how can we be sure? How can we be sure? Well, let me ask three questions. The baby we celebrate at Christmas time, who is he? Where did he come from? I mean, what do we believe? We believe that he is God of very God, that he is God, come from the heavenly places to dwell in our world among us, which means that heaven has invaded earth. Heaven is a sure thing because heaven has come in Jesus Christ into the world. But not only, what did he come to do? He came to live the life we should have lived and to die the death we should have died and was resurrected from the grave. And and Peter says it's because of the resurrection that we can be sure of this hope. And let me ask a third question. This man, Jesus, where is he now? Where is he now? Christians believe he has gone on to heavenly places before us and he has promised to come again to bring us to where he is. But even more than that, the Bible says if you believe in him, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, you are seated in the heavenlies right now with him. Think about that for a minute. If your faith is in Jesus, heaven is not a maybe for you. You're already there. If you are in Christ, you're where he is. And if you are in Christ, then eternal life is not, for people of faith, eternal life is not a future hope. It is a present reality. Even as we wait for him to come again to make all things new, as he promises in this text. Isn't that good news? And so let's rejoice and celebrate together as we come to this table now. Will you pray with me? So, Father... As we gather around this table now, we ask that you would come and wear our hearts are empty of the hope that you've made, meant for us to live with and where, where we are lacking the joy that is appropriate for us given the good news of the gospel that is ours to celebrate at this time of year. We pray that you would meet us in that place of brokenness where we have mistakenly set our hope on the things of this world, and we really do believe that solutions to our problems are just around the corner. If we could just find the right technique or the right technology, forgive us, Father, for such short-sightedness. And I do pray that you would nourish us and nourish in us faith and love and joy and hope together this morning as we feed upon the body of the Lord Jesus Christ broken and his blood shed for us. That's the opportunity you've given us. We thank you that you've promised as we gather around this table and draw near to you that you will draw near to us. And we ask that you do just that. And we pray it in your name. Amen. So as we wait for uh, the eternal kingdom and the second coming of Christ and the consummation of the kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth, don't forget that as he sends us, he doesn't send us without the strength that we need. He promises to go with us. Uh, in, in the baby Jesus at Christmas... That eternal heavenly kingdom has invaded this earth, and it is here in a very real way, and it's among us. And so these words of the promise that whatever you might face, he has already given you all that you need to conquer. And one day we will be celebrated for our conquering for all eternity. But for now, there are still wars to fight. And so we go to fight, but we go in his name and in his power and in his strength and in his spirit. And so receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. 
May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Merry Christmas.